Well, let's get rolling. I really appreciate Jim preaching for me last week. As of Friday, I could barely talk, and so I, I got a hold of him, and he jumped right in for me, so it was great, and I really do appreciate that. But we are going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago in the book of Ezra. We've got three books left that we are going through, Ezra, Nehemiah, and the book of Esther. And we got started in Ezra, made it through the first six chapters. And what's going on there is that Cyrus makes a decree to send them back to Jerusalem to allow them to build the temple. And the reason we saw for that is that in the book of Isaiah, 200 years before Cyrus was born, God prophesied through Isaiah that Cyrus would rebuild the temple. We see that from the writings of Josephus, that he confirms that very idea, that he read his name in the scrolls of Isaiah, and it basically blew his mind, as you can imagine. I mean, imagine if you were one that was reading through your Bible for the first time, and you see your name there. You know, hey, Janet Griffin's going to do this. She lives in Rockport, Missouri. You know, I mean, it would just be like, holy smokes, you know. And so can you imagine that? And so he is all on board. He gives them everything they need, sends them on their way. But it was not without trouble. They ran into all sorts of difficulties, and the difficulties came from the people. It wasn't a lack of funds. It wasn't a lack of resources. It was troublesome people that, for the most part, they didn't want them back there. Kind of sounds familiar. Doesn't it? They don't want the Israelites back in the land. Why would they be? And so they fought with this, and letters were sent back and forth, and Artaxerxes stops it, and another guy starts it. I mean, he just, and it gets a little confusing because it jumps ahead and backwards in time and all of this stuff in the writings. But, but the bottom line is this they get it built, and that's where we left off. They got it built. They were excited. They, they had sacrifices and this big celebration. It was in 516 BC. 50,000 people, almost, had gone back with them. And so, this is where we left. The next thing we're going to read is about Ezra himself, and he's going to lead some people back, about 2,000. He's going to take them back, and they are going to be servicing this temple. Now, what happens here between chapter 6 and chapter 7 is where most scholars believe that the story of Esther has taken place. Because in chapter 7, we get to a new king, Artaxerxes. He is the king, he's favoring the Jews, and what they believe is the reason he is so soft-hearted towards them is because the things that happen in the book of Esther happen right before this. There's about a 58-year gap between chapter 6 and chapter 7, and that is where they believe that Esther took place. We're going to get into Esther here very soon. We're going to finish up Ezra today. But what you're going to see in Esther is that the softening of the heart of the king and how God is setting all of this up. And that's what we need to be looking for. Because what are we trying to do? We're trying to find Christ in the Old Testament. In order to do that, you have to understand what is the Old Testament. And it is this story about a nation going through time for one purpose, to bring forth the Messiah. That is why God said you have to stay separated. You cannot go and commingle. You cannot marry these foreign wives because if you do, they will draw your heart away from Yahweh and you will worship all these other gods. And sure enough, that's what happened. And you're going to see it happen again. And so we're going to jump into Ezra chapter 7 and verse 1. It's about the seventh year of Artaxerxes' reign. He's been in power about seven years. Here we go. Verse 1. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok, the son of Ahitub, the son of Amariah, the son of Azariah, the son of Marioth, 
the son of Zariah, the son of Uzi, the son of Buki, the son of Abishua, the son of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the chief priest. Boy, that was fun. Verse 6, then Ezra came up from Babylon, and he was a skilled scribe in the law of Moses, which the Lord God of Israel had given. The king granted him all his requests according to the hand of the Lord his God upon him. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nethanim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. On the first day of the first month, he began his journey from Babylon. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem according to the good hand of his God upon him. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach statutes and ordinances in Israel. Now this is an overview, a quick introduction of what's about to take place because it's going to backtrack and give you the backstory here in a moment. First of all, we've got Artaxerxes as king. He takes over for his father in 464 BC. That's when he took over. Now, it gives us an abbreviated genealogy of Ezra. Obviously, he's not going to go all the way back. And remember, to the, the Israelites, this is a big deal because this is how they track uh, lineages. But he goes all the way back to Aaron, the chief priest. Why do you think that was? Why would he go there and stop? What it's doing, he's proven he's a Levite. He's showing his lineages of the priesthood, and therefore he has the authority to be a teacher of the law and to minister in the temple. That's where the priests came from. They were part of the Levite tribe. And, and so Sarai was the chief priest. It says uh, on there that he was the son of Sarai. He was the chief priest when Jerusalem initially had fallen, way back when. And so Ezra was very likely his great-grandson. Okay? So, Ezra, his name is a shortened form of a name called Azariah, which means Yahweh has helped. And what did we just read? As the hand of the Lord was upon him. What are we seeing? That Yahweh, God, is helping him. And he had great favor with the king. He had no position with the king, but yet he had great favor with the king. And we believe this is primarily taking place for a twofold approach because the story of Esther just took place, and I would assume most of us have read that in some capacity, and the fact that the hand of the Lord was upon him. This is what he's told him to do. And so what's going to happen is they're going to pack up, going to take 2,000 people, and they're going to head to Jerusalem. And it's a four-month journey. Okay, let's jump into verse 11. This is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra, the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes to Israel. Now remember, Ezra's writing this, so he's kind of, you know, expert, throwing that out there. Okay, verse 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, a scribe of the law of God of heaven, perfect peace and so forth, I issue a decree. That all those, who, all, the, all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem may go with you. And whereas you are being sent by the king and his seven counselors to inquire concerning Judah and Jerusalem with regard to the law of your God which is in your hand. And whereas you are to carry the silver and gold which the king and his counselors have freely offered to the God of Israel whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. And whereas all the silver and gold that you may find in the province, in all the province of Babylon, along with the freewill offering of the people and the priests, are to be freely offered for the house of their God in Jerusalem. Now therefore, be careful to buy with this money bulls, rams, and lambs, with their grain offerings and their drink offerings, and offer them on the altar of the house of your God in Jerusalem. 
And whatever seems good to you and your brethren to do with the rest of the silver and gold, do it according to the will of your God. Also, the articles that are given you for the service of the house of your God, deliver in full before the God of Jerusalem. And whatever more may be needed for the house of your God, which you have, may have occasion to provide, pay for it from the king's treasury. And I, even I, Artaxerxes the king, issue a decree to all the treasurers who are in the region beyond the river, that whatever Ezra the priest, the scribe of the law of God of heaven, may require of you, let it be done diligently. Up to 100 talents of silver, 100 cores of wheat, 100 baths of wine, 100 baths of oil, and salt without prescribed limit. Whatever is commanded by the God of heaven, let it diligently be done for the house of God of heaven. For why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? Also we inform you that it shall not be lawful to impose tax, tribute, or custom on any of the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, nethanim, or servants of this house of God. And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as that know the laws of your God, and teach those who do not know them. Whoever will not observe the law of your God and the law of the king, let judgment be executed speedily on him whether it be death or banishment or confiscation of goods or imprisonment. Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart. To beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem and has extended mercy to me before the king and his counselor and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me and I gathered leading men of Israel to go up with me. Now this is a powerful letter from Artaxerxes. Because he tells them, take the silver, take the gold vessels back with them, and he allows them to get more. As they need it, you take it. Whatever you need, you take it. And he wants them to be able to offer the sacrifices in Jerusalem. He wants to fill Jerusalem. They are given the freedom to make their own decisions, which is a rarity, because most of the time, the decisions are made by the king. It says, and when they got there, they could have whatever they needed for the temple up to a certain limit. The first thing it said was 100 talents of silver. 100 talents of silver is three and three-quarter tons. That's a lot, okay? It says that 100 cores of wheat, that's 600 bushels. Plenty of wheat. 100 baths of wine is 600 gallons. 100 baths of olive oil, 600 gallons, and an unlimited supply of salt. And remember, all of this is used in the worship of God and the sacrifices. That's what it was there for. Then he says, you're not to tax these people at all. No tax, no tributes, no customs. Leave them alone. They are doing the work of the Lord, of God of heaven. Let them do. And so he goes and he tells them all this thing. You need to set up judges. You need to do all of this stuff. But you do what you feel God is telling you to do. That is basically the premise of the letter. And this is coming from a pagan king. And you notice he said, I decree. I decree. Why did he say that? Because when in the Medo-Persian world, when something was decreed from the king and a law was established, it could not be undone even by the king himself. Remember, think back to Nebuchadnezzar. Whatever he thought went. He could do whatever the heck he wanted to do. That is not the case in the Persian Empire. When they decreed it, when it was out there, the king himself could not overturn it. What are they doing? They are setting them up for success. Nothing is going to stop them. But with all of this going on, and it's impressive, it's Ezra's response at the very end that is absolutely amazing. And this is what really matters. Because in verse 27, he says, Blessed be the Lord God of our fathers who has put such a thing as this in the king's heart to beautify the house of the Lord which is in Jerusalem. 
He's extended mercy to me before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty princes. So I was encouraged as the hand of the Lord my God was upon me, and I gathered leading men of Israel to go with me. He praises God for the things that this king is doing. Because what Artaxerxes could have said, yeah, you can go, and we wish you the best of luck. Leave all the gold. Leave all of this. You're on your own. Go get it yourself. But that's not what he said. He gave them everything that was needed, possible, for them to do this. And that's what Ezra is thankful for. That it's not just go, that everything, that that God has touched this man's heart. And so at the beginning of chapter 8, it lists a bunch of heads of all the households that would be making the journey. And it gives the number of travelers. And when I said it, it was about 2,000 people. So there's a a slug of people that are going on this trip. Now, most of the families that are are here, that is mentioned, are somehow related to the families that returned 80 years earlier with Zerubbabel. When the first exile, or first, whatever you call the reverse exile, they're going home. When that happens at first. Okay? And so there, there's a, a lineage that's going on. Now, these people more so are specific to the service of the temple than anything else. So let's jump to chapter 8 and verse 15. It says, Now I gathered by the river that flows to Ahava, and we camped there three days. And I looked among the people and the priests and found none of the sons of Levi there. Then I sent for Eli- Eliezer, Ariel, Shemaiah, Elnathan, Jerob, Elnathan, Nathan, Zechariah and Meshulam, leaders, also for Joram and Elthnathan, men of understanding. And I gave them a command for Ido, the chief man of the place of Kasaphia, and I told them that they should say to Ido and his brethren in Nethanim at the house of Kasaphia that they should bring us servants for the house of our God. Then by the good hand of our God upon us, they brought us a man of understanding, of the sons of Mali, the sons of Levi, the son of Israel, named Sherebiah. And his sons and brothers, 18 men, and Hashabiah, and with him Jeshiah, of the sons of Moriah, Merari, excuse me, his brothers and their sons, 20 men. Also, of the Nethanim, whom David and the leaders had appointed for the service of the Levites, 220 death of them. All of them were designated by name. Now, the whole point of this thing, the whole point of them going home was to the service of the temple. And in order to do that, you need the Levites because they're a big part to play in that. They are the ones that administer the sacrifices and all this other stuff. And so as they're camping out, they take three days of getting everything ready to go. When it's time to leave, they're nowhere to be found. He cannot find the Levites. So they have to go hunting them down because they've disappeared. And so they go looking for them. And they also get people who were servers of the temple that David had established, the people that served the people that served the temple. And so, the reason they needed to have these people is without the Levite teachers, the people that taught the law, they could not, the the whole trip was futile because they needed them to do this. That's what needed to happen. And so, it's like, we can't leave without these people. We've got to have them. All right, verse 21. Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. For I was ashamed to request the king an escort of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy on the road, because we had spoken to the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all those for good who seek him. But his power and his wrath are against all those who forsake him. So we fasted and entreated our God for this, and he answered our prayer. Ezra declares a fast. They're going to get focused. They're going to humble themselves before God, and they're going to seek His guidance. 
And doing this, they are demonstrating their total dependence upon God for this trip to be possible. And that is why they're going, is to serve God. This is something that He's ordained, so they're going to take time to make sure they are in the right frame of mind when they go and do this. And He made a declaration to the king that God was with them. And so therefore, nothing could be against them, and anybody who tried would face the wrath of God. And so out of this, he, of course, he said, I would be ashamed to go back to the king and ask for an escort. They've got a long trip in front of them, and they are carrying a vast amount of gold and silver as well as other things. And so the road between Babylon and Judah was full of what they would call these gangs, and they would often mug people. In fact, it was unheard of for anybody to travel without some sort of uh, army going with them to protect them. So what Ezra does next is he said, okay, here's how we're going to do this. We're going to divide the silver and the gold and the different articles, and we're going to have 24 key guys that are going to be in charge of this. And so these were the gifts of the temple that were given by the Persian officials and any Israelite that wanted to that was not returning with them. As I said, there was a lot, and there was 25 tons of silver and gold. There were three and three-quarter tons of just the silver articles and the gold and things like that. They had 20 bowls that were made of gold, and they all weighed around 19 pounds. That was a pretty hefty bowl, Okay. It's a fair amount to be hauled, so this is not a, a small task. But they needed to trust God that they were going to make it to Jerusalem unhindered. They needed God's protection, so they called a fast. And they said, we are going to get focused, and we are trusting Him. Think back to the time in the desert. What were the Israelites supposed to do when they leave Egypt? We trust God. And what did they do? They whined and complained the entire way. And yet, God always provided for them. So Ezra recognizes what's going on. We have got to get right here because this trip is for serving the Lord. And so we're going to put him first in this. Verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go to Jerusalem. And the hand of our God was upon us, and he delivered us from the hand of the enemy and from ambush along the road. So we came to Jerusalem, and we stayed there for three days. Now on the fourth day, the silver and the gold and the articles were weighed in the house of our God by the hand of Merimoth, the son of Uriah the priest, and with him was Eleazar, the son of Phinehas. With him were the Levites, Josabad, and the son of Jeshua, and Noadiah, and the son of Benui. With the number and the weight of everything, all the weight was written down at that time. The children of those who had been carried away captive, who had come from the captivity, offered burnt offerings to the God of Israel, twelve bulls for all Israel, ninety-six rams, seventy-seven lambs, and twelve male goats as a sin offering. All this was a burnt offering to the Lord. And they delivered the king's orders to the king's satraps and the governors in the region beyond the river, so they gave support to the people of the house of God. So they show up, they make it. They arrive. It's a 900-mile journey. It takes them four months to get them. They did it without a military escort, completely unheard of. The hand of God was upon them. It says He protected them from every ambush, from everything that could happen. He protected them. And the first thing they do when they, they get there is they take three days off. They rest. They catch their breath. And then immediately following that, they make a sacrifice. It's the exact same sacrifice that was made at the dedication of the temple when it was rebuilt except it was smaller in number. And it says all of this was offered for a burnt offering. And if you remember what a burnt offering was, is that it was a voluntary offering giving thanks to God for what He has provided. This wasn't a sin offering necessarily. It wasn't any of that stuff. They weren't looking to be made pure again here. It was a burnt offering to the Lord. He is thanking them. And so they count everything. Everything that was brought in, they count it. They take an accounting of it. They write it down. He delivers the king's letter to the satraps, to the governors, and of course the letter is going to be obeyed. Why? It's the decree of the king. They have no choice. They must obey it. Everything that the people have now been through is finally over. They are back in Jerusalem. They are where they belong. 
They can finally worship Yahweh after that 70-year exile that they were taken away from. They are now going to be back in the land. Everything that they have wanted is now in front of them. And all they have to do is keep His commands because nothing has changed. It was always keep my commands. The reason they were exiled in the first place is because they failed to keep His commands. They worship false God, but the number one reason is they did not keep the land Sabbaths. Every seventh year, they were supposed to allow the land to rest. They didn't do that. That's where the 70 comes from. He owned them 70 Sabbaths. And so the land rested. The people are back. You would think that this would be a time of rejoicing. And you would think that the people would have learned their lessons. Because all they got to do is look back through history. And they know their history. It is part of their, their, the Torah. I mean, it tells them what happened, how God delivered them out of bondage of Egypt. And it always goes back to that point. And then they can simply sit there and look and say, what happens when we don't follow God's commands? And what happens when we do? The reason they were supposed to is that was part of the Mosaic Covenant. God said, do you agree to my terms? They said, yes, we do. Had they said no, it would have been over. But they agreed to keep His commandments. They said, I'll be your God, you will be my people. They agreed to it. They failed at it miserably. And God constantly has to bring judgment on them for their transgression. And so you would expect that Ezra would be walking to a place that is joyful and without failure, keeping all of the commands of God. But that is not the case. These people should be solely dedicated to Yahweh. That is not the case. With everything they've been through, you would think they would have learned. They don't. Let's look at chapter 9, verse 1. See what he finds. When these things were done, talking about what happened in the previous thing, the offerings and the countings and all of that other stuff, the leaders came to me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands. With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites, for they have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of the leaders and rulers has been foremost in this trespass. So when I heard this thing, I tore my garment and my robe, and I plucked out some of the hair of my head and beard, and sat down astonished. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel assembled to me because of the transgression of those who have been carried away captive. And I sat astonished until the evening sacrifice. Ezra was not prepared for this. This is not what he was expecting. He thought he was coming back home to a place of, of extreme joy and a worship. He was coming back to teach the laws of God and to keep the commands and to show the people and to be a priest. And yet that is not what he's found. He's found that the priests have broken the law of God again because once again they have taken wives from these foreign nations. And this is not just some fringe group that may be a few rebellious people. This was the Levites themselves, the one who administer the sacrifice, the priests. This is the people that God specifically said, you are a part of the temple service. Without them, every other Israelite could not worship Yahweh in the way they needed to. These priests were uh, very important. And so he immediately, he tears his robes as a sign of mourning, but he takes it a step further and he rips out part of his beard and part of his hair. And this is a sign that he is extremely angry. Now this law may seem extreme in the fact that they, they cannot marry a non-Israelite. 
It may seem extreme, but we've got to remember why were they separated in the first place? It is to bring forth the Messiah. And every time that Israel has done this and married these foreign wives, they have drawn their heart away from God. It happened to Solomon, of all people, the wisest man who maybe has ever lived, and it happened to him. They were forbidden from that as well. And so this may seem extreme, but God had commanded them to stay separate, and they have failed to do that. These people have been in exile for 70 years, and immediately, they, because they didn't obey God, they're going to be right back where they were. I mean, it's going to start all over again. So Ezra sits down completely shocked. He's astonished. He said he sits down until the evening sacrifice. Now watch his response, verse 5. It says, At the evening sacrifice I arose from my fasting. And having torn my garment and my robe, I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God. And I said, Oh my God, I am too ashamed and humiliated to lift up my face to you. My God, for our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has grown up to the heavens. Since the days of our fathers to this day, we have been very guilty. And for our iniquities, we, our kings and our priests, have been delivered into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plunder, to humiliation, and as it is this day. And now, for a little while, grace has been shown from the Lord our God, to leave us a remnant to escape, and to give us a peg in His holy place, that our God may enlighten our eyes and give us a measure of revival in our bondage. For we were slaves, yet our God did not forsake us in our bondage. But He extended mercy to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to revive us, to repair the house of our God, to rebuild its ruins, and to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you have commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, The land which you are entering to possess is an unclean land, with the uncleanness of the people of the lands, with their abominations which have filled it from one end to another with their impurity. Now, therefore, do not give your daughters as wives for their sons, nor take their daughters to your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it as an inheritance to your children forever." And after all that has come upon us for our evil de- deeds and our, for our guilt, great guilt, since you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have given us such deliverance as this, should we again break your commandments and join in marriage with the people committing these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you have consumed us so that there would be no remnant or survivor? O Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we are left as a remnant, as it is this day. Here we are before you in our guilt, though no one can stand before you because of this. I mean, you talk about powerful. The time of the evening sacrifice would be about 3 p.m. And in this entire prayer, Ezra doesn't make a single request, not one. He doesn't say, God have mercy on us. He throws himself on the mercy of God. He talks about how all these times that you've, that you've brought judgment on because we have failed you and we have not kept your commandments, and yet you have kept a remnant for us. All the way back to our forefathers we have failed and you've always kept somebody as a possessor of the land, of the promise that you have made for us. You've never forsaken us even though we've deserved it. He is on his knees and his hands are lifted up because he is absolutely embarrassed before God. Remember, he's done nothing wrong. Here he is interceding for the people. He shows up expectancy of people who fear God, and once again, they have intermarried with these pagan lands. 
He knows they have absolutely no excuse for this, and he doesn't even try to make an excuse. His conclusion out of all of this, God is totally justified in destroying them so that there is nothing left. There's no remnant. There's no more Israel. The story ends there because they have failed. They deserved a punishment far greater than God has ever given them. His mercy has been powerful throughout the ages. He makes absolutely no requests. He is simply throwing himself on the mercy of God for his people. He's interceding for him. In chapter 10, verse 1, we see the response of the people. It says, Now while Ezra was praying, and while he was confessing, weeping, and bowing down before the house of God, a very large assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him from Israel. For the people wept very bitterly. And Shechaniah, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam spoke up and said to Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken pagan wives from the peoples of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel in spite of this. Now, therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all these, wish, all these wives and those who have been born to them, according to the advice of my master and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. Arise, for this matter is your responsibility. We also are with you. Be of good courage. And do it. They hear Ezra down on his knees crying before God and they begin to weep. And I don't know about you, but if I was standing there hearing that, so would I. Because he is doing something that they all should have been doing and weren't. They were ignoring the commands of God. They were happy with the way their life was. God was possibly, because it was a time of blessing in, the, in, in Jerusalem, they probably felt that because of this that God has got his hand upon them in this situation, but Ezra knows better, and so he is crying out to God. This large audience gathers around and says it was men, women, and children. There's a slew of them, and they begin to weep bitterly, and it's at this moment that they realize that the sin of the nation is something that is going on, and we've got to take care of it, and Shechaniah speaks up. He said, we have sinned, but there is hope. He wants to make a covenant. He says that we'll divorce these wives, and we'll send them back to where they came from. And any children that came from this marriage, they go with them. Now this may seem harsh, right? This is not something that we like to talk about, but God's law was clear. They should have never have been married in the first place because the purpose of Israel being separated was so that the Messiah could come. These pagan wives would eventually lead them away from Yahweh. It didn't just happen once in a while. Every time it happened. When it talks about in the book of Numbers where it says, you know, that, that we are to be gentle to the sojourner or the, the, the people that are coming in, it's not talking about just what we would call a refugee or something like that. It is talking about a people who come into the land and they become a proselyte Israelite. They are one of them. They have forsaken their old land and they have now come to worship God and to be one of the Israelites. That is a legal marriage. The other way is not. These people were not proselytes, at least not all of them. In verse 5, Then Ezra rose and made the leaders of the priests, the Levites and all Israel, swear an oath that they would do according to this word. So they swore an oath. Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went into the chamber of Jehonan, excuse me, the son of Eliashib. And when he came there, he ate no bread and drank no water, for he mourned because of the guilt of those from the captivity. And they issued a proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem to all the descendants of their captivity, that they must gather at Jerusalem, and that whoever would not come within three days, according to the instructions of the leaders and elders, all his property would be confiscated, and he himself 
would be separated from the assembly of those in captivity, from the captivity. So all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered at Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month on the twentieth of the month, and all the people sat in the open square of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and because of a heavy rain. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have transgressed and have taken pagan wives, adding to the guilt of Israel. Now therefore make confession to the Lord God of your fathers and do his will. Separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the pagan wives. Then all the assembly answered and said with a loud voice, Yes, as you have said, we must do. But there are many people, and it is the season for heavy rain, and we are not able to stand outside, nor is this the work of one or two days, for there are many of us who have transgressed in the matter. Please let the leaders of our entire assembly stand and let all those in our cities who have taken pagan wives come at appointed times together with the elders and judges of their cities until the fierce wrath of our God is turned away from us in this matter. Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, opposed this. And Meshulam and Shabbatiah, the Levite, gave them support. Then the descendants of the captivity did so, and Ezra and the priests... The priests, with certain heads of the father's household, were set apart by the father's household, each of them by name. And they sat down at the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. By the first day of the first month, they finished questioning all the men who had taken pagan wives. Now, this was a big ask. He said, you got to get here. you got three days. They were spread out everywhere. I mean, we're not talking, you know, it's a five-minute walk. They're spread out everywhere. You've got three days to get there. And this is no easy task because it's during the rainy season. talks about how the heavy rain. So they've got to travel on this. But there was a, a consequence if they did, if they failed to do this, that we will cut you off from the nation. You will no longer have any part to do with the assembly, and we will take everything you have. So they had no alternative. They had no choice but to be there. So everyone shows up. And it says that they gathered in the square, which would be on the east side of the temple, and it's raining. I mean, it's, it's the rainy season. And so they're probably standing out there. They're probably somewhat cold and shivering and all of that. And Ezra stands before them, and he calls him out for their sin. And he says, you need to repent. You need to do the right thing here. And they agree, and they acknowledge that they've done wrong, and they agree that they need to make it right. But they also say, this is not an easy task. There's a lot of us. A lot of us has failed. We have got to do this. It's going to take some time. And so what they want to do is they want to set up the time where they can come to the judges and the, the, the priests and, and the leaders of these different sections, the people in charge there, and have them meet before them in order to determine whether they need to go back, which is going to take three months. Now, why do they need to do this? It's because just because somebody was from a pagan land did not make the marriage illegitimate. Remember, if they came in as a proselyte Jew, they have forsaken their old nationality. They're no longer whatever they were. They're no longer Canaanite or Hizite or any of the other Perizzites, any of that stuff. But now they are one with Israel. And Israel is to treat them as if they were a born and bred Israelite because of that. And so therefore they had a right to be married. The children were there. And so they were meeting with the judges to basically make their case. Each case was judged individually. It takes 11 days before they get started from that time from the time of the meeting, and it takes three months before they're all over. The end of the chapter gives a list of all the names who are part of this and all of that. It's vast, and we're not going to read through all those names. But what is happening? God is purifying the nation once again. He's showing mercy on them. Imagine if they didn't repent, what we would read later. 
Another exile, perhaps. Another, another failure. Another judgment of God forced upon them. I mean, there's so much of this, but why are they doing this? It's to bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The reason He came was to make us right with God. And so we're seeing that take place. Now, we've got two books to go through yet. We've got the book of Esther, and we've got the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is going to be about building the wall around Jerusalem to protect them. Esther, you're going to see God use a woman that's not an Israelite to soften the heart of the king. It can be used by him. It's, it's powerful. 